From KCRW, this is Greater LA. I'm Steve Chiotakis with a show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Today, we're taking you to an artist studio right under the new 6th Street Bridge in downtown Los Angeles, where a couple of filmmakers are editing their newest project. Let me, let me check. I'm not 100% sure, but the sound we recorded on site will be in the, the film itself. So it's an actual time where we were filming it. It's not edited. That sound is Russian artillery bombarding the city of Kherson in Ukraine. Now, these two filmmakers, Yurema Malashchuk and Roman Kimei, live in Ukraine's capital of Kyiv. But for right now, they're here in Los Angeles, thousands of miles away from the shelling. They're participating in a residency program for Ukrainian artists created by a local curator after Russia's invasion, which began exactly one year ago tomorrow. Reporter Kerstin Zium explains. Local independent curator Asha Bokoyemsky has family roots in Ukraine. For years, she wanted to present cinema art from the country in Southern California. After Russia's invasion, her idea finally gained traction and she received the necessary funding. To really provide these artists the opportunity to do what they needed to do or what they want to do, which is for some simply to rest and research, whereas for others it's to do editing that they haven't been able to do because of the, the environment of war. Such as stress because of ongoing bombardments, limited film locations that are safe and unpredictable power outages. The program is called Kiev to LA. Over a period of six months, filmmakers and an art historian are traveling from Ukraine to Los Angeles, where they are provided with living and workspaces, as well as opportunities to show their work. The kickoff was held recently at the Institute of Contemporary Art Los Angeles. Asha asked guests to bring food and drinks for a potluck. More than 180 people showed up. And soon, a table next to exhibition catalogs and postcards bent under the weight of Ukrainian and Californian specialties. Pierogi and borscht next to vegan cookies and avocado toast. It's really about creating a project that connects people and creates genuine dialogue. Because for a lot of people from Los Angeles, or at least even in California, most of them have never met artists, or even really anybody from Ukraine. And also, in general, a lot of Americans don't understand the complexity uh, the, and the history of why Russia is invading Ukraine. While Roman was still in Europe waiting for his visa, the screening showed three short films by him and Yarema. From their first collaboration in 2014 during the Maidan revolution in Kiev to an experimental film scrutinizing the social media posts of dead Russian soldiers. The filmmakers re-enacted scenes of Russian bodies set almost without dialogue in a romantic setting of the Carpathian Mountains. Yarema explained. When Ukrainians are dying and uh, the deaths of Russian soldiers don't affect me. And that's normal, unfortunately, because this is war. And during war, you have a black and white. And uh, it may sound some kind of uh, crazy things to say when your country is not at war, but uh, you have to take a side, you have to dehumanize your enemy. 
After the screening, conversations continued over finger food, beer and wine. Jarema patiently answered every question, saying this is now his duty as Ukrainian culture worker. So I'm really happy to be here because it's so far. It means that you know people don't really understand to Ukraine because when you don't know anything about the certain things, you know you have like this small, pretty narrow image. And uh, when you learn more, you just you know you have a bigger picture, and uh, that's this is a good chance to spread a word and uh, spread some. Ukrainian art. After Roman finally arrived in Los Angeles in late January, he and Yarema got to work. It's uh, the beginning of the film. In a light-filled studio with high ceilings, a long table, an espresso machine and coffee cups of multiple colors on the kitchen counter, the two filmmakers huddle over a laptop. They are working on their latest film. It shows nothing but walls, empty except for nails, hooks and pedestals. They are the walls of Kherson's Museum of Local Lore. On this pedestal, we will again place the architectural detail made of limestone, which once decorated the ancient temple. The voice of a narrator recites what used to be on the walls, before the museum was looted by Russian soldiers during the occupation of Kherson from May until November. Soon after, the filmmakers from Kyiv arrived. We were at, actually at the crime scene. It, we were not allowed to touch certain things yeah. because they still need to go through the whole uh, list of uh, looted uh, objects. And it uh, was not just some random looting. It was mass collective robbery of the culture. Zana Ozirna is another filmmaker who will come to Los Angeles with the program. She had to postpone the filming of her latest project because of the war. The feature film is based on the history of her hometown in the center of Ukraine. Russia bulldozed its buildings in the 1960s to build a factory, modern houses for its workers and infrastructure. The main locations where Zana planned to film are a mine and a region close to the Belarusian border. Both are now under continuous attacks by Russian artillery. Now she waits in Kiev for her papers and is grateful to have electricity for connecting via Zoom. So two hours there is no electricity, four hours there is. Because uh, sometimes when uh, Russians uh, are bombing, actually today they bombed, but our air defense right now is pretty strong, so they protect the sky. Zana is coming to Los Angeles to get a new perspective on her projects. An essential part of Kiev to L.A. are opportunities for the artists to meet some locals, at intimate dinners in living rooms, as well as at university panels and art exhibitions. She looks forward to making new connections. Because uh, I think that being in Ukraine, it's kind of more or less the same uh, visual language, you know? But I think uh, for the project, it will be super cool if I just can collaborate or be inspired in terms of um, visual. Another artist still waiting in Kiev for his papers for the residency in Los Angeles is Oleksiy Radinsky. Like the other male artists in the program, the 38-year-old filmmaker needs an exemption from martial law to leave Ukraine. Technically... I'm not allowed to uh, leave the country like all of uh, men of draft age, but luckily there is a possibility uh, to get an exemption from this. And so basically if I get this exemption, I come to the LA. Yeah, uh, that's, not, that's not actually that easy. 
but it's possible. Those Ukrainians who have already been working in L.A. expressed both excitement to be here and a sense that they are too far away from the action at home in Ukraine. You need to be in this reality even under the artillery or ballistic shelling and it doesn't matter, like, you really feel that you are at home. Yeah, sounds weird, but it's, it's like this. This is the most important time in their lives for their country, the artists say, and they look forward to practicing their art in Ukraine again, whether it is safe or not. For KCRW, I'm Kerstin Sim. By the way, if you want to meet Yurema and Roman, there will be a screening and lunch talk in a couple of weeks on March 9th at Cal State Northridge. You can find the link at our website, kcrw.com slash gla. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Moving on now with Greater LA from KCRW, I'm Steve Chiatakis. A lot more rain is on the way tonight and tomorrow and into this weekend. There is even a rare blizzard warning for higher elevations of LA County. But oh, the melancholy feeling in drought-plagued LA when you think about, when you watch all that stormwater flow right out into the Pacific Ocean. And a new report from the group LA Waterkeeper won't make you feel much better. It found that since L.A. approved Measure W, remember that, which was supposed to fund the capturing and cleaning of stormwater, well, progress has been a drop in the bucket. And much like all that stormwater flowing out to the sea, some folks believe Measure W so far has been a wasted opportunity. Haley Smith is a reporter for the L.A. Times covering wildfires, drought, and climate change. She's with us right now. Hi, Haley. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Great to have you. Measure W, it raises a lot of money. We're talking $300 million a year um, from this parcel tax for homeowners. It goes into something called the Safe Clean Water Program. Give us sort of a primer of how that program works. What this program is supposed to do and is doing, but not as effectively as it could, um, is create more opportunities for us to capture and clean more stormwater when it falls. And so when I say that, I don't just mean buckets or reservoirs. It's also about um, replacing a lot of the concrete and the asphalt in the county with more permeable spaces that can sort of allow that water to seep into the earth and replenish the basins beneath our feet that make up a really important piece of our water supply. Um, so the, the Safe Clean Water Program is approving projects, but not as quickly as it could be. And in fact, this report found that they're starting to slow down. All right. Well, why? Why is it not doing what it, what it was intended to do? And, and where it is helping, where is it helping? Sure. So one of their findings was that it's a grant-based program, which means essentially the county is having to wait for applicants to come to them and say, hey, here's a project idea. We want to replace this parking lot with green space, for example. And that worked well in the beginning during the first three years of this program when there were a lot of projects sort of in the backlog waiting to get done. But what's happening now is that sitting around waiting for applicants is sort of 
giving this piecemeal project by project result. And what critics are saying is, why don't we take a more proactive approach? Why don't we take a larger sort of visionary approach and maybe even approach some landowners and say, hey, you've got a big parking lot or you've got a, you know, a schoolyard covered in pavement that we could convert into something more permeable. So um, that's part of the problem, I would say. And in fact, this report found that so far under the program, only 30 acres of new green space have been added so far. And that's in a county the size of 30 million acres. That is insane, right? <laughs> I mean, if we're talking about five years, almost five years since this thing was approved, right? And, and what it was supposed to do and just those few acres that we have so far. Yeah. Well, I think part of the problem as well is the fact that so much of L.A. County is already built up, right? It's covered in properties, personal and private. It's covered in parking lots. It's covered in all sorts of asphalt and concrete. Even the L.A. River is pretty much filled with concrete. And so they're having to work around the built environment. Um, and so sometimes that could mean having to acquire new land or remediate a brownfield in order to make it usable. But the important thing is that there's so many benefits to this kind of work beyond just letting more stormwater percolate into the ground. So replacing a schoolyard with green space, for example, can provide more shade. It can fight urban heat effect. It can provide a gathering place for communities and, you know, provide teaching opportunities for kids. So there are a lot of reasons to do this work. And I should note that a lot of the experts and people that I spoke to for this story applauded the county. They said it's great that we've gotten this off the ground. It is a really ambitious program. Um, it's just a matter now of how can we streamline this and make it better moving forward. Well, you said becoming more proactive, right? Instead of waiting for people to come to you, go to the people and say, hey, this is something that we can do. And I, mm -hmm. I wonder if, you know... In that realm, is it is it something about the size of projects that sort of has the holdup here, like the fact that bigger projects, maybe there's more bureaucracy involved, there, there are more permits that need to be done, all of that, you know, I mean, we know that California can make things a little difficult, right, to get something <laughs> off the ground. So, I mean, I wonder if the bureaucracy is 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 playing a role in all of this. That is definitely part of the problem. And in fact, one of the biggest landowners in the region is the LA Unified School District. And so there's so much opportunity to do this kind of work around schools. But what this report found was that in the first three years of this program, only one of 10 proposals submitted by LAUSD was able to secure funding through this program. And then that project was later withdrawn. So basically, almost no work has been done around schools yet. And you know, I think that the assessment here was this isn't to say schools aren't doing their part. It's that we need to do more to make this information available to, like I said, be proactive, approach them and figure out ways that we can work together um, to sort of let more people and entities in L.A. County know that these funds are available and that these projects are possible. And there's a lot of ways stormwater capture can be woven into our infrastructure. And there are more critics, though, right, of, of the safe clean water program. I mean, you you mentioned proactive, reactive, things like that, but, but there are still critics who say there's not much of a vision for this mm -hmm. program writ large. W what does that mean? 
Sure. Well, there are other things that we could point to as examples. Um, there was a transit tax passed in L.A. County that had kind of a broad vision for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years of what transit in L.A. could look like. And so, yeah, one of the experts I spoke to compared this to that and said, why don't we have a, a longer term vision here? And transit is actually a perfect example. Why shouldn't we have every single transit project that's getting approved in L.A.? incorporate some stormwater capture into its design. You also had a story this week about is the drought over? One of those stories, right? <laughs> and look, yeah. I mean, I've been I've been here a while. We've had a string of years where it's been really really dry and then and then a wet year or two wet years in a row, things like that, right? And that's I think all a a, a result a byproduct of climate change. Can you say that the drought is over because we've gotten so much rain this wet season. Yeah, I know it's hard for people to look out at like their drought brown yards and then in the distance see snow-capped mountains. It's kind of like, well, wait a second, are we in a drought or are we not? <laughs> Service conditions are improved, certainly. There's no one denying that the reservoirs aren't looking better. The snowpack is much healthier. But um, we have a lot of water sources that aren't doing that well. The atmospheric rivers in January didn't really do much for our groundwater supply. And they also didn't really do much for the Colorado River, which is a major source of water in Southern California. If anything, this wet moment that we're having is a perfect time for us to be saving and preparing for when that dryness inevitably comes back. Haley Smith, reporter for the L.A. Times, covering wildfires and drought and climate change. Haley, thanks for coming on. Thanks for explaining it to us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Moving on now with Greater L.A. from KCRW, I'm Steve Chiatakis. When San Gabriel Valley native Yolanda Gonzalez was seven years old, her grandmother gave her a paint set, an artistic gift that's paid off a thousandfold. In the more than 50 years since, she's taken up art residencies in Japan and Italy, but always kept Los Angeles in her heart. And now, with her first in-depth exhibition, it is clear that L.A. is at home in her work. The colors of her still lifes are bright and vivid. Some of the faces in her portraits, ones you'd find in the East L.A. of today and the past. Yolanda Gonzalez joins me right now at the Museum of Latin American Art, where her work is on display. Yolanda, welcome to you. Oh, thank you for having me, Steve. To, to see your whole career's work exhibited together it must evoke a lot of a lot of feelings, a lot of emotion. What kind of emotions are you getting from all of this? Well, I've, um, I'm very proud, of course, and it just is an honor to see these works hanging at MOLA, and I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> You're overwhelmed. I understand that the emotions evoked, you know, included even, even some tears. Yes. You know, Steve, I, I consider um, the process of creating art that of a relationship. And uh, my works of art are essentially my children, the children that I, I never had. And it wasn't just your grandmother buying you paints that began your career. I mean, it actually it runs in your family, doesn't it? It absolutely does run in my family, and and uh, we have drawings uh, from 1877 from my great grandfather wow. Juan Nepomuceno Lopez. Beautiful classic drawings, and so the portrait has been in our family since 1877, definitely. And you've actually exhibited your work with other members of your family, right? What was what was that like? 
It was quite interesting. My mother was so excited to exhibit her um, her ceramics, and she was um, 89 years old. And unfortunately, she passed away um, right before the the exhibition finished. Oh, but she, I'm sorry. thank you. She went to her opening, and she was so excited. So, yeah, she joined um, the other artists on the other side, and you know. But it was so exciting for her to see, you know, her mother and her grandfather's work, and um, myself and my niece. So, it was such a. a incredible incredible exhibition um so it the sueño de la familia more um, vincent price museum has some beautiful catalogs of um uh, of the history of my family the sueño means dreams right yes yes yeah so your your dreams are very important to your process of of creation how do you translate those things those dreams nightmares to images how do you do that well, I, I really believe when we are in the dream space that we travel to other dimensions and we are given messages and visited. Um, we have visits with people on the other side. So um, the sueños are somewhat um, surreal and uh, have several layers that can take up to years to create um, because they have so many different layers on them. But for me, it is bringing to the realization on a canvas or a, um, a ceramic, the dreams that we have, and it's my interpretation of them. And mostly, Steve, they're, they're mostly quite beautiful. I'm very lucky to have a, a great uh, dream space uh, experience. When you when you were living outside of this country, right? When you lived in Japan, when you lived in in other parts of the world, and you were studying or 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 just seeing, you know, all these other these these other kinds of artistic expressions. I wonder, you know, I mean, you talk about Chicano art and aesthetics being important to you, but there was also a period in your career when some of your work wasn't considered by some by some folks to be Chicano or Chicana enough. And there was a criticism. How did you take that? I think everybody's really entitled to, to their opinion when they see art, of course. My goal is to be pure with the art that is um, that is created by myself. It's to express myself and and rightfully so living in Japan for, you know, six months or five and a half months and traveling to Russia and seeing how the the Russian artists lived and created has definitely influenced me. And I think as an artist, it, it would be uh, somewhat of a disgrace if I was not true to those influences and the uh, process of creating what my soul has experienced throughout all of those years. And so the relationship is essentially between my art and, uh, and myself and it's, it reminds me of a, of a marriage, Steve. It's, you know, mm. people have their their relationships and there are people who are going to always have an opinion about other people's relationships. But my relationship with my creativity is very pure and uh, and it's essentially my process. And so my last breath, when I lay down, um, you know, to go on to the other side, I'm going to be very happy because... I really created a world and an environment for myself that was absolutely magical and um, was very happy.
Well, it's beautiful work. I want to thank you for coming on and, and talking to us. Yolanda Gonzalez, artist based here in L.A. Her exhibition is at the Museum of Latin American Art, or MOLA, in Long Beach. Yolanda, thank you so much. Good luck to you. Congratulations. Steve, thank you for taking the time, and I, I greatly appreciate it. Have a lovely day. That's going to do it for us today, a wet day, and some wet days ahead in L.A. Please stay safe. Next week, a debate over rewilding the L.A. River. It's playing out in the Sepulveda Basin, an update. And LAUSD's Black Student Achievement Plan that's supposed to address disparities there. How's it going? All next week on GLA. Share your thoughts with us. Maybe even share a story. We'd love to share the podcast with you. And that's done all at kcrw.com slash greater LA. Or get the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Just search KCRW Greater LA. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Phil Richards, Amy Todd, Carlos Ramirez, Jody Adler, Sue Margulies, and Christian Bordall all had hands and ears on today's episode. I'm Steve Chitakis. Thank you for your time. And, of course, that ear. Have a great night.